Today's episode of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Sensory Friendly Solutions. Discover sensory friendly solutions for daily life. To learn more, head to sensoryfriendly.net. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode four of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. We're almost to the halfway mark of this first season. Can you believe it? On the podcast today for episode four is a man named Bill Wong. And I was reflecting on the conversation that I was lucky enough to have with him, and he's a fascinating person. I started to engage with his work via a TED Talk he did at TEDx Grand Forks. The title was Fighting On, Overcoming Autism Diagnosis with Bill Wong. And I thought the description of the talk was really fascinating. It's had over 22,000 views. And I'll read how TEDx introduced Bill. I think it captures it nicely. Using his rare perspective as an occupational therapist and an individual with autism, Bill Wong, OTD, OTR, slash L, presents problems individuals with autism are facing today. Offering community-based solutions, Bill showcases how individuals with autism are capable of success, even if the routes they take in life don't fit the expected. Born in Hong Kong but raised in the United States, Bill Wong didn't speak until he was nearly three. Although he demonstrated restricted and repetitive behavior, his pediatrician refused to diagnose him with autism because of his high IQ. It wasn't until after obtaining an undergraduate degree in statistics and finding limited job prospects that Bill was finally diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and discovered his passion in occupational therapy. Since 2010, Bill has completed a master's degree in occupational therapy and received his clinical doctorate. Now an established clinician with a specialty in autism, he is also a well-known presence on social media, an avenue he uses to share his successes and challenges as an individual with autism. Moving forward, Bill plans to use his passion to engage students in Chinese-speaking countries with education in their native language while continuing to establish himself as a leader in OT and autism communities. And again, that is TEDx Grand Forks, and we'll put a link to Bill's talk in our show notes. I asked him how he wanted to be discovered by you all, the audience. And he said Twitter. Uh, he's very active on Twitter. He has almost 13,000 followers following the work. He's got a great bio, uh, lots of titles, lots of different hats. You can find him at Bill Wong OT. I think you're really going to love this conversation. I feel very lucky to have had this conversation with Bill Wong. Enjoy episode four of the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast. Bill Wong, welcome to the Sensory Friendly Solutions Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. You're, you're very welcome indeed. We're really eager to dig into your experience, into your career as well. And before we started recording, you mentioned to me that 
you're used to this. Does that mean you speak a lot? Uh, I guess for me, that means I mean, like, I have done some podcasts as a host before. Yeah. And I've also been on the other end as a guest as well. So I'm pretty used to the drill. You're, you're used to the drill. What's your experience with the podcast medium? What do you think? Do you think it's good to have these free form conversations? Oh, yeah. I think it's like definitely, I think on select topics. So, like, the ones that I usually host are from AOTA, and we're mm-hmm. doing like a leadership podcast. So, therefore, it's like I'm part of the crew that either help plan those or actually be the facilitator of those. So therefore I've been on that end. Mm-hmm. And then like, I've also been on the, on the guest end as well. On the, of course, on that podcast, as well as other podcasts by other members of the OT community. So, and also autism community as well. So I'm pretty used to it by now. Certainly, I've, been this year, I've been to about six podcasts as guests, five or six podcasts as guests. So I'm pretty used to it. Fantastic. I'm always surprised when people tell us it's their first because the medium has been around for some time. So this is certainly not your first. No, like for that podcast that I do for AOTA, mm-hmm. we've been doing that for almost five years now. So yeah, like we, I've been used to the format actually because it's part of the my role in AOTA. It's not a big role per se, it's a small group. But it's like we are producing these leadership podcasts. And I'm so used to the format by now. It's all good. That's great. I really want to get into what AOTA is. But first, let's start at the beginning. And let's actually start outside of your career and your life. This has been a really strange year for everybody. Where do we find you right now? Where do I find you right now? So in terms of geographic lo- location, right? I do not Yeah. Know. And this question. Yeah, where's your location exactly? So I live in East Los Angeles specifically. So I think that's in the USA. I think that's a good enough answer, right? Yeah, East LA. That's wonderful. We were we were in LA County in September and it was really beautiful. Coming from the East Coast of Canada, it's a big change. Yeah, I think speaking of East Coast, I think the most East I've been in Canada was in... PEI. I was there, I think, three years ago. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So we find you in East LA. What has this year been like for you in in America, in California? It must have been a really strange year. It is a very strange year. And now, of course, you also have to add, aside from COVID, you also have to add to the wildfires that we have. The air quality is so bad that it's like going outside is definitely a challenge as well. And What's I think the situation with all- the wildfires right now. Yeah, we have quite a bit of fires on the West Coast. So mm-hmm. like the air quality from what I know is like usually is like is like decent, but for the last few weeks it's been very bad. Mm. Yeah. I would say it's probably I would say at least ten times worse than usual, if not more. Yes. And then factoring in COVID on top of that. What has your experience been like this year? Has your work carried on as usual? Has your life carried on as usual? Or has it been a total disruption? Oh, good question. So in terms of work, I still work in the nursing home, but Mm -hmm. the routine has definitely changed for sure, you know, with like daily check-ins and then infection protocols, you know. I mean, infection control protocols. 
So mm-hmm. like I just think there's different ones from different facilities that has definitely been the challenge. So that's a different part, right? And then in terms of education, because of the teachers well. So at least for the lecture-based classes, this whole year is all online. So definitely that was a big change, you know? And then I think, let's see. Yeah. And then of course, my, one of my favorite hobbies to play golf that has also changed as well, you know? So Uh for a time, like when the shelter in place orders were happening as like, the golf courses did not open for like two months, you know? And then now <laughs> it's like, unless let's say I'm going out with my mom or my dad to play golf, you're like, you can't share cards with anybody. Right, right. That's another, when, yeah, that's another one. When you think about your teaching right now, and I want to dig into to what you're teaching and where you're teaching, do you think we lose something when we take education online? I know it's the situation we're in right now and we have to adapt. How do you feel like you've been adapting to that? Oh man, I think I heard from a lot of my colleagues in my field. They've said it's like they had to do a lot more work than say when the class is on ground, you know? Oh really? So there are a few factors, you know? One is I think it's like your schedule got to be a lot more flexible than before because like, you know, it's like, Sometimes it's like maybe the students, you know, they may not want to meet you at this regular scheduled time. They may want to do something else, you know? And then it's like, mm-hmm. I think even that there are a lot of uncertainties, right? So therefore it's like, it's like you got to try to respond to students' emails because I, I can imagine there'll be a lot of emailing about like clarification for assignments or papers, whatever it is, you know? So like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff happens. And then in my schools, like, uh, we track attendance and yeah, so because like they had to use discussion board, like every class they have to do it, discussion boards as a means mm-hmm. to track attendance, you know? So of course I also have to grade the discussion boards posts. So that is something that, that is definitely, <laughs> that work wouldn't exist if, if the classes were on ground, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's like there's Certainly. a lot more work than usual, I would say. Yeah, and then another thing I think is like, given that the students have a lot of anxiety of what's happening already, so mm. I can sense that it's like the, the students want to know where they stand as soon as possible. Sure. Let's stay there for a second because that's really interesting. We are on the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast, and we talk a lot on this podcast about sensory overload and the elements of our current time. You notice that in your student body, would you say? Oh, you know what? What they call Zoom fatigue or like being on video Zoom conference. Like, yeah, there is such a quick term like that, you know, because they're on the video conferencing software programs too long. Sometimes they'd be on for hours upon hours of the lectures, you know. Sometimes mm-hmm. the students just zoned out probably a lot more quickly than say on ground, you know. Because it's like, because in person, it's like, you know what? If I see the people raise their hands, you know, then it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to stop and I was answer questions, you know? But if it's online now, it's like, you know what? Even if it's on Zoom, right? I can't see all the students on one screen. It's like, it's hard to know when the students have questions. Yeah. So, so it's like, therefore, sometimes it's like, 
sometimes the students are like, Bill, just go, man. Just go on the lecture. <laughs> and then it's like, if we have any questions, we was just like, okay, we just type it in the chat box. Or when the lecture is over, we just shout out the questions to you. <laughs> yeah. And it's also that I think we're also, we've heard on the course of this podcast, we're always being bombarded with news. It seems to me like, especially news from America. I know Canadians even, we pay a lot of attention to what's happening south of the border. So when you're on your computer the entire day, even for work, it's tempting to be constantly checking the news, to be checking Twitter, to be checking these sources. Oh yeah, definitely, you know? Or sometimes it's like on Zoom, right? You can just turn off your camera and sometimes it's like, I don't know if you're doing something else, you know? I don't know exactly. if you're checking your email. I don't know if you're on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Facebook. I don't know that. Exactly. Bill, with your permission, let's let's sort of trace your career a little bit. So describe for people not only what you do professionally today, but how did you get here? Um, tell us a little bit about your origin story and your career. So I guess, how do I get here? Let me get a clarifying question first before Absolutely. I don't really understand. Absolutely. So I guess what you mean by uh, how you get here is get to where I am today professionally. Is that what it is being asked? Exactly. So what was the what was that arc of your career? How did it progress to now? Ah, very good question. So forgive me to ramble on and on because people... Uh, autistic individuals, they can have a tendency to do that. Although, of course, being an instructor, you know, like being rambling on and on and on is not a very good thing. You know, well, as you know, on a podcast, this is the perfect time to ramble. <laughs> Although it's like, of course, it's like there's also a length of time. There's, there's also keeping a constraint, you know. So that's why it's like, you know, so like finding the right balance in terms of sharing relevant information versus like, going on and on nonstop. But anyway, right. now I'm going to go back to the question. So I will say this. So be, growing up, I would say growing up, you know, uh, math was actually my strong point. It was actually not a field like health sciences. I would say it was very far away because growing up, I got a trophy. I won a mental math competition. So I was pretty good at arithmetic. And then also, like, I remember in fifth grade, before I immigrated to the U.S. with my family, it's like, after competing in the open qualifier for the International Math Olympiad. So therefore, it's like, when math was a strong point, of course, it's like, and it was all throughout high school, it's like, it's not surprising that I was declaring, I declared uh, stats as my major for my undergrad. And then I think what the turning point when I did not pursue that further was when I was taking the upper division courses in undergrad. So about the sophomore or junior year of my undergrad, that was when I had my moment. It's like, you know what? It's like, it's not worth it to pursue anymore. Especially when I heard that what I'd be in for if I were to pursue statistics in graduate school. I was like, I did not want to be more miserable for three more years. <laughs> you know, I was like, because like for me, it's like, I realized right away when I took the 
some upper division courses in mathematics and stats. You know, it's a lot of proofs and it's very abstract and it's not very black and white as like arithmetic. Mm-hmm. And then I try accounting, but it's for me, for someone like me, I guess little that I know is like with someone like me who don't have very good executive functioning is like actually accounting was actually not a very good match given that they're so complex in terms of rules and keep having mm. stuff like that. Mm. For me, it's like, nope, that actually is not it. And then I, coming out of undergrad with a stats degree, I was unemployed for a year and a half, actually. And about a year towards that unemployment period, that was when my parents said, it's like, well, you either could continue to be unemployed or you should start looking at some of the careers to continue life, you know, because you shouldn't be wasting your time like this. Mm. Yeah, so we explored a few fields, you know. We explored business school. The business school was actually our first choice because that was the least amount of prerequisites to make up if we were to go to a graduate school. Unfortunately, my score for the graduate school exam, it was not not the best that my parents would hope for. (laughs) So, and I think my parents' perception was if I couldn't get into a good business school, then it's like then it'll be a not a very worthwhile investment, you know. Mm-hmm. And let me try like seminary because like at the time my parents and I we were pretty active in the church, and we knew some uh, clergy, like young clergy, you know, they went through a similar path. But then we look at the job prospects. I was like, nope, that ain't it either, you know. <laughs> That's not it either. That ain't it either. So then we look at OT, occupational therapy and we look at, I guess at the time is like, we didn't consider occupational therapy assistance because we, I guess my family is like, why are we going backwards in terms of degree? You know, why are we having, you, you have a bachelor's already. Why are you going back to have an associate's? It doesn't make sense, you know? So then we looked at a master's program for occupational therapy. And we only looked at one school ironically because like, I guess that school was pretty close to home. And it was so that school is actually is University of South, Southern California. USC. Yeah. Well, of course, there's also another USC down in Australia as well. You know, that's right. why I said the full name as well. It's better to say that way because right. in Australia, there is University of Sunshine, Sunshine Coast. And they also oh. know that as USC too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just this is the FYI, you know. I I noticed later on in my career, but this is more of a side note, you know. But then it's like back to the story. So mm-hmm. my parents were like, you know what, this school is pretty close, you know. And then we look at the prerequisites. It's like, hey, maybe I could make it, you know, because like even though it's a top school, but at the time it's like, you know what, my math skills was pretty strong. It's still pretty strong, especially considering I have a stats major, you know, it's like, so it's like, who knows, maybe I'm able to get in the field because like, hey, my GPA is about par with the admission requirements. And then after taking some practice tests, it's like, hey, you know, if I have a decent day, you know what, I probably can meet the requirements for the graduate school exam examination score too, you know? So it's like, hey, you got this. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then of course we also look at the job prospects. It's like, 
oh, the pay is pretty good and the unemployment rate is pretty low at the time. And then we also heard about the admissions rate at the time at that USC. It's like, it's 50%, you know? So it's not like now, of course, but like 50%. I was like, dude, my odds are pretty high if I were to get it. That's a good deal. (laughs) That's a good deal, you know? And then so it's like we spent about a year to actually make up the prerequisites to enter into the occupational therapy school. And I guess that school was also the only school I applied. Although in the U.S. right now, this is not the strategy I would advise right. students to do so because nowadays it's like the environment is so competitive, I would not advise that. Right. But anyway, it's like so to... So I started my occupational therapy school at US that USC at in two thousand nine, summer two thousand nine. It was a very rocky beginning, but it was sort of expected because like to transition from a field like statistics to a field like occupational therapy, mm. definitely it was definitely a transition, you know, because like it's not like crunching numbers anymore. It's more like a lot of health science stuff. And right. I remember back in my day when I was in high school, like anatomy and my physiology, then my worst enemies. So definitely <laughs> I was barely getting by. But yeah, so I was barely getting by. And then mm-hmm. the long term, when I sort of survived, I think many of my classmates said it probably got better, right? Uh, academically, I sort of got better because like, you know what? I sort of beginning to get the hang of the feel, you know, beginning to get a hang of what, occupational therapy is and as i got to know more about it i was like oh you know what i think at the six months mark that was when i finally bought into it you know what that is going to be my career Mm. but on the flip side of things you know we also had to do like the clinical rotations or internships and actually i struggled a lot there in the very beginning you know and the comments that i got was like oh poor eye contact Poor reading of social cues, mm. not managing the time well. And when I heard that the first time, I sort of put off by it because, like, you know what? It's, I was still learning. I was still a transition phase. Yeah. But the second time that happened again, that was when sort of you the alarm bells, you know? It's like, hey, how come I struggle with this more than my classmates do? Mm. Right? So... And then I think I that I think a few months later, a few weeks later, actually I read a reading about in pediatrics about how autistic children play. And I remember I reflect upon my childhood. I was like, you know what? These descriptions look like me. And I brought that attention, that attention, of course, to my parents. But my parents are like, you're in in OT school of all places. How can you have autism? So I just listened to my parents and I just put it off. But then it's like in the summer of 2010, I was in a clinical internship that actually really matters now. It's like it's not the observational placements that I had before. It was actually the hands-on placement. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled mightily in that one. And in fact, it's like out of the 12-week placement, I walked out after week seven. So technically, yeah. I failed that placement. But... When my parents learned that I walked out of the placement and I got a fail, they actually, I told them, I was like, well, you know what? This struggle has been continuing for a year now in terms of my clinical internships. I need to find out why I was struggling. 
So I guess at that time, I was also very fortunate to be on like the insurance plan for my university. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get the screening and the uh, assessment done pretty quickly. Uh, that period, I remember that took me a year. Uh, no, no, not a year, sorry. A month, actually. Mm-hmm. So that took me a month to actually get tested. And I remember in August of 2010, that was when I found out my diagnosis of Asperger's. Hmm. Yeah. So when you received the feedback from your professors at the time and you read the article about how kids play, it's something resonated with you. You saw some of yourself in those descriptions. Actually, all of it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, we can break down that question because we, I'm sure we can continue on in terms of how I got on today. But you feel free to pause, you know? Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. So you 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 end up receiving a positive diagnosis. What happens from there? So good question. So of course, the day of, I brought up brought up to my parents, and mm-hmm. instead of scolding me about failing the clinical internship, they were not re- I guess they feel like regretful in terms of mm-hmm. like making me do the internship about listening to me because like they felt very guilty of me being in an eight ball at that time because like they knew that I could not afford to fail another clinical internship. So Mm. therefore they felt that they caused the failure, so to speak. And then in terms of my classmates, a lot of them, they were very shocked. And I would say it's like the shock part is not because like, I was a little bit different socially, was was more because like I was going through all my education without any kind of accommodation. Mm. And I think and then the diagnosis part, that was probably the second thing that they were surprised by because like they probably could not have imagined somebody who is autistic amongst them in their classroom. Mm. Mm. And so you fast forward, you get to your later years of study, you eventually come out of university and now you're practicing in the field. Is that right? Yes, I am. And I will say this in between, you know, definitely that was a long road there to get back because mm. aside from, because the fact that I felt clinical rotation, right? So that means I have to make a one aside from the one that I, I'm supposed to have remaining. Right. So therefore, it's like that. I would say I took about a year longer than my classmates in general to get my license to practice. Mm. And I would say this, and then I think that I think towards the middle part of my second internship, that was when I decided, you know what, I got to get a doctoral degree because, like, you know what. Part of it is because of my graduate exam score. I knew that it was it would still be valid for two more years. And I did not want to go through that test again, you know? Yep. <laughs> I did not yep. want to go through that standardized test again. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to give myself a two-year window, get the doctorate done, and then start my career that way. Oh, yeah. And then in between, too, I was like, I think, like, 
just before I resumed my clinical internship, it was like summer of 2011 because I started my, mm-hmm. I resumed my clinical internship in fall of 2011. So in summer 2011, there was a big turning point because I actually vented on Facebook. It was like, who the heck in the OT community has autism? And then there was a caregiver from the UK. She actually commented to say, hey, there is this autistic OT from the UK. He works in like adolescent, men- young adult mental health, and he's autistic. And here's his website. You might want to contact him to see if he is willing to talk to you. And then two to three weeks later, I was able to connect with him and actually... Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like, that was a big turning point. That I definitely want to mention that too. What did that, what did that conversation do for you in terms of it being a turning point? I say that because like, so in our first meeting, we actually compare our professional journeys up to where I was, like, like where he was as a student compared to where I was as a student. Mm. We were comparing our journeys and actually it's like, Although when, in terms of when he found out his diagnosis, it was a different point, but our struggles were very similar. Right. So you were able to relate with his experience. Yes. And actually that actually gave me the hope that it's like, he can be, I can be an OT, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Bill, what does it mean to you to be an occupational therapist? You strike me as a very passionate person. I guess for me, it's like, what happened was, so I guess I'm going to continue to answer the previous question, actually. Yeah. So for yeah. me, like, it took me a year to actually find that guy. But I know that the subsequent encounters that I've met other autistic OT students mm. is like, they actually approached me like almost like as the last resort, so to speak, you know? And then, of course, in the U.S., typically our occupational therapy education is about two years, two years and a half if you include a clinical internship. So a year is definitely not a luxury that many people have. Mm. Right? So like, right. so that was, so I was like, I think I sort of made an oath to myself. It was like, if I were able to become an occupational therapist, I definitely do not want a repeat of what has happened to me to somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's why you do a lot of this work as well. And I know when we finish this story about what, what being an OT means to you, I really want to talk about your TEDx talk in Grand Forks because I was really blown away by that. Oh, yeah. So actually, so backstory now. So actually, it's like it's good that you bring it down, by the way, because like <laughs> I could go on and on about how I get to where I'm today, you know? Yeah. So the backstory was this. So... I would say that because like for my doctorate year, I actually did not choose to practice. So in summer of 2013, that was actually my first year of practicing as an occupational therapist. And I remember my first job was in uh, pediatrics, actually. And at that time, it was like, you know, it actually matched me very good on paper because there were a few things, you know. And then my clinical rota- rotation performance, pediatrics was actually my best one. And then given that I'm, I'm autistic, so I definitely could have some insights about how autistic children might behave or 
what understand why they right. act who they are, you know. And then thirdly is like the location is like about I don't know you guys use kilometers, so it's about ten kilometers from my home. You know that job is not so yep. bad. <laughs> yeah, distance. And then yep. fourthly, the finally is like I actually met, I met the supervisor in person at a previous conference. So therefore, it's like you know, figure out the transition plan, right? So it's like, hey, you know, it's like somebody who really knows you in the job. So it's like naturally, people will think it's like, hey, you know what? You have all these four factors. You know, it's like this is not a bad first job. You know, sure. But unfortunately, that job only lasted three months for me. And the reason why was because I guess one of the things that I struggle, and this is. Very typical struggle for autistic individuals is like they really struggle with play, and I do as well. <laughs> so therefore, it's like, well, because a lot of mm, the pediatric sessions that I encounter, there's a lot of play involved, and I definitely struggle with creative play. I was very, I was very bad at that. And then secondly, right. in like, what way would you say that you struggle with creative play? What way? I guess for me is like you know what I just cannot imagine my yeah I cannot be like some other pediatric occupational therapist as not observe is like you're so playful I am not so to right. speak you know? right. I'm definitely not so like okay that is definitely not me and then secondly is like because I grew up in Hong Kong so it's like I was so used to the behavior management system that for the British behavior management system. And currently, that did not work <laughs> in the states. <laughs> that does not work in the states. I definitely remember like that was definitely another struggle for me that I did not anticipate. You know, mm. so I was like, I was that, and then after that, almost a year, I was actually unemployed, so to speak. I was trying to figure out what my next direction was, right. and then like. Through some soul searching, I was actually on. I've settled on like the nursing home setting, which I've now been working for six years. And then I chose to transition very slowly, you know. And then it was like three months into that job, in the industrial nursing job, that was when I got approached by a team member from TEDx Grand Forks. And that time, that team member was an OT student. Mm -hmm. So she actually found me on Twitter and said. Bill, your story is very interesting. It's like, you know, it's like, I want to nominate you to talk on this TEDx, you know? Like, would you be open to that? And I remember we talked for an hour and a half just to know the gist of it. And then she told me, it's like, okay, if I nominate you, if you were chosen, like, like for a final round, don't be surprised if there's a group interview. Mm -hmm. So like three weeks later, I got the group interview and that was that evening they notified me that I, I was a speaker so I think that yeah so that was the backstory of that that's fantastic and I was watching it before we spoke and you mentioned getting an email from a man with autism who was nervous about his career Actually, opportunities incorrect let me correct you it's a lady Yes, thank you. It was a lady. So this lady emails you and she's nervous about her career opportunities. And you said something really insightful. You said that perhaps your work hadn't reached far enough because your goal was to address the figures that you gave, which is 3.5 million 
autistic adults in America and 35% unemployment. Do I have those figures correct? That was 2015. In so 2015. Yeah, that was 2014, 2015. So obviously that number is probably not as true right now, you know, because right. that, was five, that was five years ago. Right. Yeah, almost six years ago. Right. Yeah, longer than we think. So what did getting that email mean to you? Uh, so what I meant that I've not done good enough is because like, you know what? I think is like, I've, that's what I mentioned earlier. Is like, mm. like after I found the guy, right? The autistic OT, like four years beforehand, three, four years beforehand, I was like, you know what? I did not want to repeat what happened to me again. And I think eventually found out that is like she dropped out of occupational mm-hmm. therapy school. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like that kind of stuff. I was like, that is very unacceptable. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff that is happening in terms of the and educational system. Is that why you use the phrase? I love when you when you go through this TEDx talk, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes so our listeners can watch you speak. You bring up some really famous people who also share the diagnosis of autism and you use the term fight on. Um, And I thought that was really elegant in the sense that that's what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to, whether it's employment or education, you're trying to, to help those with the diagnosis of autism fight on. Oh, here's the thing. So at the university of Southern California, that is actually our slogan. Is it? Okay. It's actually a slogan. So when I explained to my speech coach about the title, I was like, I don't care what you shape my speeches, but it's like, okay, after the final product, after I get a sense what the speech is all about, it's like, hey, I need to keep the fighting on part. The reason why is because like, hey, that's my alma mater for occupational therapy school. (laughs) So therefore I want to keep it. And another thing you will also notice is the, background too so it's like i think that's one of the sometimes when the usc football they played i'm talking about the american football you know one of the colors for the jerseys i think it's not the cardinal and gold but it's like black and gold sometimes that also symbolizes the school in a sense you know so it's like keep that color it's like there is a purpose to it there's a purpose to it that's great you're representing usc what did what was the feedback of that TEDx talk? Did you reach some of the folks you you intended to reach with that talk? You know what? I think I had some emails ever since. You know, I have some emails yeah. from autistic individuals ever since, especially those who are going through the school. They were like, "Wow, I couldn't." I mean, like, I want to be like you. You know, it's like, mm. how the heck you do what you do? You know, you know, it's like it's almost like. In a sense, it's like you're giving me hope, but in a sense, you're also like, you know what? It's like, what you do is like, it's like a mountain to climb, you know? I think that's the feedback from that. And then yeah. the fact that it's like 20,000 views, I noticed that there are some programs, whenever they're having me over for a guest lecture, that has become a prerequisite for the students mm-hmm. to watch before I come into the lectures. Well, that's great, Bill. What do you think when we talk about that un- that employment gap, that 35% unemployment, what do you believe we can do to tackle that? We certainly want to talk about solutions on this podcast, 
are there ways that you think we can start to talk about or to address this employment gap? Oh, so I don't know if you heard of the term masking or academically it's called camouflaging. So what's that? Can you explain? Yeah, I can definitely explain that. You know, so for camouflaging or masking, that actually means that it's like, it's like right now, actually, when I'm talking to you, I'm definitely masking in a sense, you know, it's like mm. pretending I'm very socially competent, you know, <laughs> and I think, you know, and like, you know, it's like, you're like wearing a mask, you know, it's like people, it's very hard. Sometimes it's like, you got to be socially competent. So that is mm. like, keep the job or keep the relationships or keep rapport with friends, you know, so like. That kind of stuff, and I heard from other autistic individuals on Twitter is like that can get very tiring. Right. And I don't know if like given that I have a social media presence, so for me it's like it starts when I wake up and it only stops when I sleep because mm-hmm. I think for me the reason why is because I'm an occupational therapist, so therefore it's like even on my social media space, even I'm an I will consider myself a micro influencer. You know, it's like it's I got to keep it professional. And to keep it professional, sometimes it's like I have to mask, even when I'm posting on Twitter, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of stuff is, is definitely is very hard. I think when you talk about solutions, right? I mean, the social skills training, I think is like in the workplace. I think that's very important. But at the mm-hmm. same time, on the flip side, I think it's like the people who are neurotypical, I think it's also very important for them to understand is like, you know, the autistic individuals, they, they're actually putting a lot more effort in think to actually to get along with you in the workplace, you know, or try to, yeah. So like, and then of course the sensory stuff as well, you know, in my environment, in the nursing home, actually there are a lot of sensory stuff that can be going on, you know, that could be stuff like, I know in my place of like, until like a few months ago, like the nursing home, they had like fluorescent lights, fluorescent lights, you know, and a lot of autistic individuals, they do not like that. Interesting. Yeah, that's another, that's one of them. And then of course, I also heard like kids, right? They're like, they, sometimes they don't like alarms, especially unpredictable alarms, you know, like that's why they hate their hard time with fire drills. Right. Or earthquake drills, that kind of stuff. In the nursing home, that can really happen as well, you know? Because right. like sometimes I would walk in, it's like I would not know when they would have a fire drill. Right. Good point. Bill, yeah. Yeah, Bill when you think about your life day to day, the final question that I always ask our guest, when the world seems a bit too noisy or a bit too busy or we're overwhelmed, what's one strategy you use to cope with that? It could be maybe mindfulness. It could be music. What are some of the things that you do day to day to center yourself? Ooh, so that's a good question. So music, definitely most one of them. So in my car, definitely I would blast my music. I would definitely do that. So yeah, it's like in LA, it's like, it's actually relatively common, you know? Like a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. it's a very ghetto thing. But like, I guess that's one bad habit I picked up from my undergrad days. driving around LA with your music yeah that's like that's a very bad habit but a lot of young people they do it you know young people uh, of course I won't say young people but like and that's a great way to de-stress from a busy day they would do it (laughs) 
you know, they would do that. And then also like at my home. So it's like, you notice I'm at my room right now. So it's like, yeah, it's like there's a lot. I think once my family understand that I have autism, so they understand like, you know what? My room is my space. Sure. So they were like, yeah. So I think before they were like, Bill, just socialize with us. I think after the diagnosis, so like, you don't want just be you, you know, like if you can function and do what you do in your day job, that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. That's great, Bill. Bill, for our listeners that want to to see your work, that want to listen to what you're saying, hearing the things you have to teach us, where's the best place to find you? Is it on social media? Where's the best place to interface with yeah. your work? I'll do Twitter. So at Bill Wong, at Bill Wong OT, that's my Twitter. That's awesome. my Twitter. Yeah, I know. It's like that's now you know why I was like ramble on and on because I could have gone on and on about like my work as well. Because I know that Grand Fork stuff, that was only like about half of my journey. Absolutely, Bill. And you've had a really fascinating journey thus far. And I seriously hope we get to speak again. I'm going to make sure our listeners follow your Twitter account so we know what you're talking about. And I'll follow personally as well to keep up with all the things that you're doing. And thank you very, very much for being on the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Okay, Crystal, we're back for our reflection session for episode four. And I've, I've started to realize that I really actually enjoy these, these times to sit back and reflect on the conversations we've been having. I did it personally after the episode with Bill Wong, just because I felt lucky to have the opportunity Uh, But now we get to actually talk about what was meaningful to us, what we considered. We're evolving as we go in this podcast and we're now on episode four. So give me your give me your first impressions after listening to that conversation. Yeah. So first of all, first of all, I was uh, delighted to have uh, Dr. Bill Wong on on the podcast. So uh, some of our audience may know that October is Occupational Therapy Month in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Bill is a guest um, and it's being published um, in the month of October. So I was really happy just uh, the fortuitous timing of that. Um, October 27th is actually World Occupational Therapy Day. Uh, and October is also Sensory Awareness Month. So, mm. yeah, of all the guests to have uh, during the month of October, I thought, um, and I have followed, I'm an occupational therapist myself. I have followed Bill for years on Twitter and really appreciate what he shares as an occupational therapist, but also uh, as an autistic person. He's uh, very forthcoming about his experiences and what he shared on our podcast. Um, yeah, just I, the the value of that uh, is incredibly important. You know, we're all, we're already at episode four, Matt. You talked about mm-hmm. when we when we launched um, and thought, what direction are we going in? What are the types of conversations we're going to have? We we put out to the community. We said, who who do you want us to have as guests? Mm-hmm. Uh, and several people responded and said, um, we, we want to, okay, you're going to hear from thought leaders and, and industry experts. We want to hear person first stories. Uh, we want to have, uh, yeah. um, right, autistic people 
on uh, people who identify as neurodiverse, people who have sensory sensitivities themselves. Let us hear from them. Yeah, I already knew when I was speaking to him that 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 exact model, this 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 person first element of the podcast, and when Bill traced his story and was so forthcoming about what he's experienced, I realized that the influence he carries in the community, over 12,000 followers on Twitter, over 22,000 views on the TEDx Grand Forks talk, was that was exactly that, the, the authenticity, the relatability. One thing that I thought was fascinating and I thought might pique your interest was when he said that it's interesting that his parents and those in the healthcare sector were reluctant to follow through with the diagnosis because of his high IQ. But then he learns through his occupational therapy training, how young autistic children play and how they navigate the world. And he said, I see myself in this. What an amazing moment. And that's one of those one of kind of podcast moments I live for, because that's a really aha moment for me to say, I mean, what a fascinating experience of the world. Yeah, Matt, I, I, I highlighted a couple of just a couple of, of quotes of what he said. And, and one of them was that response. No, literally, how can you have autism? Right. I, I think it was his uh, possibly his his parents and their that initial response of, of them. You're you're going through university. Right. And, and he said later, uh, going through the education system without any accommodation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and but this is what he talked about. He, he he recognized his struggles and how I'll just say not fortuitous, but how you know, how he he was going down this path of studying math and statistics and, 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 you know, and considering professions and careers, identifying that they weren't a match. And we, mm -hmm. you know, the public, you know, there, there was that movie, The Accountant, and the public might have this perception, this, this um, wrong perception about uh, people with autism. Oh, you're all good at math and this wonderful careers. Um, and, and Bill, you know, talking about how that, that was not a match for him and, and looking for something else, finding occupational therapy, yep. where he then studied autism as part of that. And, and, started to understand his his reflect on his struggles and i think that's incredibly powerful um, as you know so, as an adult to recognize your struggles reflect on them seek help uh, he ended up with a, a diagnosis that was very informative and very helpful for him to have uh, but that seeking to understand as adults and we have an opportunity to to do that, right? To understand our problems and and look for look for solutions. Um, it was also I don't know what you thought about this. He he um, he mentioned, and this was you know only about uh, ten years ago mm -hmm. when when he disclosed his diagnosis, right? The the journey of his family, right? Their feelings of, of regret and guilt. He talked about the shock of his classmates, fellow mm. occupational therapy students. Uh, and something else he that I highlighted, he, he talked about he his fellow classmates sort of um, saying they could not imagine someone autistic amongst them. Right? Mm. And that and I, that just really makes me think, um, you know, people and their struggles and people with differences and what we have in common. There are all kinds of people are everywhere, 
Yeah, right? this is actually a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought that up because we saw this with Maureen Benny. We'll see this forthcoming with Carol Kranowitz. We have an amazing conversation coming up about the out-of-sync child, which sold over a million copies. It's been blurred by the New York Times. When you name it, the evolution of that thing changes. And that's been a recurring theme, and I'm fascinated by that discussion. So I'm glad that that connected with you as well. There was one other thing that I thought was was um, important. In Bill's TED Talk and why it had so much reception, TEDx Grand Forks, and we have a link to that in our forthcoming show notes and blog post, when he talked about the idea of, of that evolution of his employment, yes. like you say, things not sticking, um, not quite right, well, 35%, as Bill says, of autistic adults in America are unemployed. And one of his missions is discovering why that is and um, what what I's need to be dotted, what T's need to be crossed to solve that, because that, in his mind, is an unacceptable figure. And so that was interesting for him to paint his picture and relate it back to that stat I thought carried a lot of weight. Yeah, we talk, um, or just as we we have these conversations um, and many of the the people we're talking to and in in particular bill uh, you know you really captured his passion about that with him and he said he wants to make sure along these lines what happened to me doesn't happen to someone else and that that pivotal moment he talked about several turning points and that that pivotal moment where he found another occupational therapist who identified and publicly identified as having autism Mm -hmm. and just you know as we we bring the community that diverse community together of of people who uh, experience sensory sensitivities for many different ways just um feeling not alone feeling like there's there's someone else who uh, who shares a little bit um, of what what happens in daily life uh, and then helping other people along so that uh, you know some of the struggles again for Bill just empowering other people uh, to yeah. uh, experience better more different I've seen the power of community in this sector throughout the course of this podcast. Like you mentioned, this figure in Bill's life eventually became a mentor. Um, As I said, in episode five, we're going to hear from the author, Carol Kranowitz, about how many parents reached out to her and said, this helped me so much understand the evolution of my child and my relationship with my child. So the, the community building aspect, the aspect of I see you, I hear you in this community has become so obvious throughout the course of this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, Bill talked about his uh, his slogan "Fighting On," right, mm-hmm. uh, and how that really uh, that really resonated with him. That was his uh, school's uh, slogan, uh, and he talked about just you know just sharing his message on our podcast in in so many ways um, that you know people have value. All all kinds of people have value, uh, yeah. and let's you know. Let's find those solutions of sensory friendly solutions at home. He talked about his experiences a little bit at home, at work, right? And finding a, a workplace that worked for him, right? That was right for him and, and finding those opportunities so that people can share their value, right? In daily life. Yeah. 
It was Absolutely. incredible. And, and Dr. Bill Wong is incredibly active on social media, fighting on, as you say, the slogan of his alma mater, USC. So we will be linking to all of these things for Dr. Bill Wong, including in taking part in our innovation segment, his, his TEDx Grand Forks talk as well. So Crystal, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reflect on this conversation, but also for our listeners to be able to reflect on this conversation. Thank you, Matt. I'm going to leave you with um, something that Bill shared uh, very much towards the end of uh, end of his uh, his interview. Uh, two words uh, that I think really uh, encapsulate uh, his mission and uh, his passion, and what we're all trying to do in these conversations, uh, and as we strive to make people comfortable, uh, and that really just is be you. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to episode four of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast. This is the innovation segment. We don't want you to leave this podcast without something to go and do in the world. That's what we're all craving right now during the pandemic. We want to know what to do. That's our fundamental anxiety. So we want to give you the strategies, tools, tactics, and resources to go out into the world and do that to create sensory friendly solutions in your daily lives. We're going to stick with the great Dr. Bill Wong for this innovation segment. You've heard it more than once throughout the course of this podcast episode. We're going to point you to his TED Talk. This was at TEDx Grand Forks. And the title is Fighting On, Overcoming Autism Diagnosis. Dr. Wong is very forthcoming about his experience of the world. This is a person-first podcast. So we really love him for that. We thank him for that, for walking us through his journey, backing it up with some hard statistics like that 35% figure that you'll hear about. And you'll also hear why it resonated with almost 23,000 people. We've heard already throughout the course of this podcast, your listener feedback, and we thank you for it that you want to hear the real-world experiences of the people that we're talking to. And this innovation segment is no different. Please go to YouTube or directly to TEDx. They have a TEDx Talks channel on YouTube with 27 million subscribers. There's lots of people paying attention. And go to Fighting On, Overcoming Autism Diagnosis with the great Dr. Bill Wong at the TEDx Grand Forks. We'll see you back for episode five of the Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast with the best-selling author of The Out-of-Sync Child, Carol Kranowitz. Thank you to our sponsor, Taking It Global, ensuring that youth around the world are actively engaged and connected in shaping a more inclusive, peaceful, and sustainable world. As part of their Rising Youth Initiative, they're looking for young people who are inspired with ideas and ready to take action through youth-led community service grants. Head to risingyouth.ca to learn more and to become the next Rising Youth grant recipient. The podcast is also supported by New Brunswick Community College as part of the Community Resource Awareness During and After COVID-19 Applied Research Project funded by the New Brunswick Innovation Foundation. Learn more about NBCC's efforts to transform lives and communities at nbcc.ca. The Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast is produced by me, 
Matt George is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche. It is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.